Well, I guess we can go ahead and, uh, and get started here. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, I think this, uh, this class wraps up our series through ancient church history. And so uh, looking forward to doing that with you all. But let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are thankful that you are the God of history and that as we study this great subject, which in many ways is so far above and beyond what we can, uh, what we can manage and deal with, Lord, um, we're thankful that uh, we are studying you and we're studying your work uh, throughout history. We're thankful that you preserve your church and that we are a testament to that fact here today. And so, Lord, as we study these things, we pray that you would bless us, that you would open and sharpen our minds, and that you would better equip us for the days ahead in service to our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are, uh, I think, finishing up this series on ancient church history. Um, Just to give a little overview of where we've been, I believe, I, I haven't been here, I think, most of the time this class has been taught, uh, I've been up and coming, but I believe we started in the book of Acts, uh, which is the first church history document that we have, and we've progressed to the point where now we are in the middle of the 5th century. And so we are at the, the, uh, the very doorstep of the Middle Ages, which for those of you who are wondering You've probably heard that term, Middle Ages, wondering what that is. Roughly, it's the, the period between 500 and 1500, it's about a thousand-year period. And so we are at the, uh, the doorstep of the Middle Ages, and um, we're not going to talk about the Middle Ages in here, but hopefully we'll do a class on that in the future. It's a very interesting time. It's frankly uh, that point in church history that I know least about, and so I would personally be interested in studying more about that. But today we're talking about, you can see there in, uh, in your outline, the Council of, I think Mike mentioned last time, I, I call it Chalcedon. He calls it Chalcedon. Uh, I did look it up in the dictionary and the first pronunciation given is Chalcedon. Uh, but it did say that Chalcedon is an option. So I, I may oscillate between the two, so just forgive me for that. Uh, just want to review, just by way of introduction, some of the things that you learned and talked about last time. Uh, these two councils, the Council of Ephesus, which came before Chalcedon in what year? 325 would be Nicaea. Ephesus occurred no, 431. 431. Uh, that council and this council of Chalcedon, which occurred in 451, are the two councils that are closest together historically. Only 20 years separated these two major councils. You think about Nicaea and uh, the following council, which was what? I'm quizzing you here. Constantinople in 381. Uh, Those two were separated by almost 60 years. Uh, Constantinople and the next council, which was Ephesus, were separated by 50 years. So these two were by 20 years. And so uh, these deal with a lot of the same issues. And so it's very important, I think, that we kind of review some of the things that you talked about last time. First of all, you see there in your outline, Ephesus and Nestorius, the Council of Ephesus and Nestorius. Uh, Remember that Ephesus was convened to deal with the problem of Nestorianism. Now, would somebody uh, like to remind us what Nestorianism taught? We know that Nestorianism was condemned as heresy in the Council of Ephesus in 431. But what did it teach? Nestorianism taught... Were you about to say something, Rob Bruce? Oh, go ahead. Nestorianism taught that that Christ is uh, two persons in two natures. They had a hard... Nestorius... Again, it's it's, it's difficult to determine whether or not Nestorius was a Nestorian. But had a difficult time reconciling the fact that Christ uh, exists in two natures. And so the way he, he and especially those that followed, that followed after him reconciled that problem is that they said, well, if Christ is two natures, he must be two persons. If you remember the watchword, that, that shibboleth for Nestorianism, that, that, that phrase that people looked out for to, to catch Nestorians was uh, theotokos, which means what? 
God-bearer. They denied that term. They said that Mary was not the God-bearer. The Orthodox affirmed that Mary was Theotokos, God-bearer. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Now, the interesting thing about Nestorianism, I don't know if Mike talked about this last time, but uh, a little historical tidbit here, just kind of a, a side trail. The first missionaries to China were actually Nestorians in about the 7th century. Uh, China actually has a very long history of Christianity in its own nation. Now, that means that the only exposure, at least at first, to China was technically heresy, Christological heresy. Now, here's the question, and this is something that my church history professor and seminary kind of posed to our class, and it's something that's missiologically interesting to think about. Uh, were, those Christ- were those Chinese people who converted to Christianity under Nestorian teaching, were they true Christians? Now, we're not going to deal with that here. Uh, I, I would think they are because, you know, the, the thing about heresy is if you don't know that something's heresy, you can't really be held accountable for that. Uh, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him alone for salvation, then, you know, if you haven't been taught more than that, then it's hard to see why somebody cannot be uh, a genuine believer. But anyways, we're not going to deal with that here. I just thought it was an important little uh, side trail for you to research on your own to see how it wasn't just Orthodox Christianity that, that went out into the world. It was actually other forms of, of heterodox Christianity that made it into other parts of the world. Now, uh, back to the matter at hand. As has been the pattern with, uh, with all the creeds that we've seen, the condemnation of error did not stamp out that error, uh, historically speaking. And so uh, we get to, you can see there in your outline, Eutyches and big fancy word, monophysitism. Monophysitism. Uh, Eutyches, just a, a review here again, was a monk who lived around 380 to 456. He was a contemporary of Augustine. He was around 50 years old when Augustine died. And Eutyches' problem was that he was really the total opposite of Nestorius and Nestorianism in particular. What did Eutyches teach? Well... Whereas Nestorianism uh, held strongly to two natures in Christ but pieced them together wrongly uh, in, in two persons, Eutyches uh, had really an even stranger way of, of harmonizing the fact that Christ is two natures, exists in two natures. He actually believed that Christ had two natures before the incarnation, that Christ... Uh, was God and man before the incarnation. And then so in the incarnation, we actually have a melding of the two natures in Christ, human and divine, into something of a third nature, something that's different from both fully divine and fully human. It was a nature of a third kind. I think uh, Mike talked about last time how uh, the illustration used is that in, it was like drops of, of wine dissolving into the sea. The wine is still, is still wine, but it's, but it's become part of the ocean. Well, uh, in response to Eutyches, Pope Leo I, who was also called Pope Leo the Great, I think he was the first pope to be labeled as such, uh, was utterly incensed. He was outraged at Eutyches. And he sent a letter to the Bishop of Constantinople at that time named Flavian, to write about, uh, about Eutyches' teaching and to express his anger that he was out here teaching these things. And this letter came to be known, and I'm leading up to Chalcedon here, this letter came to be known as Leo's Tome. And it was very influential to the doctrinal formulations of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Now, what Leo argued here is that it is very dangerous. It is very dangerous to the soul to teach that Christ's nature was of a third kind. He argued that Christ's humanity must be true and full and distinct from the divine nature in Christ. Now, I asked the question, and I, and I would invite an answer, why is this important? Why was Leo so incensed at Eutyches uh, melding the two natures of Christ and therefore really denying that Christ had a fully human nature and a fully divine nature distinct from one another. 
Why is that a big deal? Suffering and temptation has no relevancy if it's something That's exactly right. Uh, to put it the way Gregory of Nazianzus put it, which I think quite uh, Mike referenced, I don't know if he quoted this last time, but he referenced this man. He said, whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. If Christ's human nature was not like ours in every uh, natural respect except sin, that's why I said natural because sin is not, uh, it's not original to human nature. It's not essential. If Christ's human nature was not like ours, then, then no human being can be saved. No flesh can be saved. In fact, this is one of the major points that the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 2 when he says, For indeed, Christ took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid them that are tempted. And so if Christ is not fully human... If his human nature is not distinct and real, then salvation cannot be accomplished. And so through this, through the writings of Leo and of Eutyches, tensions rose. And uh, the emperor once again stepped in. The emperor at this point was named Martian. It's not Martian as you know, somebody who comes from you know, a creature from Mars. It's M-A-R-C-I-A-N, not to be confused with the heretic Marcion. This is Emperor Martian. He steps in and convenes another church council. And this council would meet in the city of Chalcedon. For those of you that are wondering where that is, it is located in uh, modern day, a city. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. It's either Kataka or Katakoi. If you look at Turkey and the Bosporus Strait, where the two little fingers of Turkey meet, uh, I think on one side you have the Black Sea, other side, I can't remember what else. But where the two meet, on the, uh, on the eastern side, you have Istanbul. And on the western side, you have the city of Kadokoy, formerly known as Chalcedon. Now, the Council of Chalcedon was held from October 8th to November 1st. And so it was not a very long council, especially when you consider how long previous councils were. But October 8th to November 1st in AD 451. Now, this was a long time ago, and I, I was just thinking as I was studying for this, just to give you an idea of how long ago this was. Because uh, we're approaching the 1,572nd anniversary of Chalcedon. We're on October 8th. Just to give you an idea of this, King David of Israel was actually closer historically to Chalcedon than we are. That's how long ago Chalcedon was. So we're dealing with very, very old things, but still very relevant today. Now, around 500 representatives, as many as possibly 520, were present at this council. Now, you can see there in your outline, uh, I want to talk just for a second about the relationship between Chalcedon and the previous councils. Now, what's interesting about this council in particular is that the previous council, which was the Council of Ephesus in 431, forbade the convening of any other councils. Actually, when they met, when they decided on these matters, they said no other councils can meet. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, when Chalcedon was called very much against the dictates of Ephesus, the product of Chalcedon was not called a creed, but as we call it today, it was rather a, uh, a definition, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, the Chalcedonian definition. Now, what the Council of Chalcedon did is they affirmed, they affirmed Niceno-Constantinopolitan orthodoxy. That is, they affirmed the, uh, the doctrinal formulations of Nicaea and its closely related council, uh, Constantinople, and the creed of both of those councils. But they also went a little bit further, and they offered a clarification on the church's teaching regarding Orthodox Christology. And this is where uh, Chalcedon really gets its major significance and so, therefore, we now turn to the major product of the Council of Chalcedon, which is the Chalcedonian definition. And that takes us to uh, 
major heading two in our outline. Any any questions before I before I move on here? Any questions or comments? That was just kind of the historical introduction. All right. Well, let's talk about the Chalcedonian definition. Now, I want to give a brief word here uh, before we look at the actual definition about theological method. Thus far in our study of the creeds of the, of the Christian church, uh, I wonder if you've noticed the types of things that have been said about God and specifically the way they've been said about God. If you think about, for example, the, uh, the Nicene Creed, what we have in that creed are all positive assertions. That is, uh, we are confessing what God is, who God is, what Christ is, who Christ is, what the Holy Spirit and the church are. But with something like the incarnation of Christ, uh, which is entirely entirely unique and uh, very mysterious, uh, difficult to comprehend and to grasp by our finite human minds, uh, it's difficult to say at times what exactly the incarnation was, what exactly Christ is. And so therefore, the framers of the Chalcedonian definition, what they wanted to do was more lay out the boundaries of Christological orthodoxy. And the way they did that, you can see in your outline, was through what has been termed apophatic theology. That is theology by the way of negation. And we'll see that when we read uh, the creed here in just a second. But what they, what they do is they, they talk about Christ's natures in terms of what what the, the hypostatic union, that is the union between the natures and the, between the two natures and the one person of Christ, they talk about what that is not. Not as opposed to, but, but uh, they, they don't talk about what it is, okay? They, they talk about what it's not. We do that with, uh, with God's nature, by the way. We talk about how God is immutable, right? That is, that is to say he, he is unchanging. He does not change. We say he is invisible, that is, he is not visible. We say he is unbeginning, that he is immortal. Well, Chalcedon does the same with Christology. And so uh, with that, I would actually like to read the entire definition here, and you can see it in your outline if you want to follow along. This was uh, what Chalcedon formulated. Following the saintly fathers... We all, with one voice, teach and con- teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer. There's that Greek word, Theotokos, again. Uh, for us and for our salvation, the virgin God-bearer as regards his humanity from Mary. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo, here's that apophatic theology, no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. And so you can see there at the very end, they're basing this, this formulation uh, not on opinion, not on Greek philosophical speculation, but rather on the prophets, on Christ, and then on the creed and the fathers of the church. Now, I just want to address a couple of significant things about this definition. First of all, you can see there what was affirmed from the past. The definition begins with following the saintly, that is the holy fathers, by this, they mean the fathers of the Christian church, all those men who had come before in the previous councils. And we can see language that was taken almost directly from Nicaea and Constantinople, uh, the creeds that, that they formulated. 
You can see there, for example, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. Begotten, and here's where it gets explicit, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity uh, and the same for us and for our salvation. You can see the language taken directly. We confess this quite regularly here at this church. Christ who for us and for our salvation became man from Mary as regards his humanity. And so there's nothing new here. But there is something that is clarified. And that's what I want to deal with a little bit more at length here. What was clarified regarding Orthodox Christology? You can see there, again, that Chalcedon confirmed that Mary is Theotokos, the God-bearer. Uh, again, this does not mean, and I know you talked about this last time, so this is, I know this is review, but it's, it's important because uh, people, especially Protestants, get squeamish with this word. Uh, it does not mean that Mary gave birth to or was somehow the originator of the divine nature. Okay, The divine nature, uh, the divine essence is unbeginning, uncreated, uh, completely self-existent, uh, independent of all. Okay, That is not what these men meant by Mary being the God-bearer, but rather Mary gave birth to the one person of Jesus Christ. They confess all throughout this, one Christ, uh, one Lord, one Savior. Mary gave birth to the one person, Jesus Christ, who is himself God. Now, just bear with me for a moment. We're going we're to kind of offer some more clarifications on how to make sense of that in just a moment. But the boundaries of orthodoxy here in this definition have been established. And so what I want to do for a few moments here is I just want to go through this, this definition and see if we can discern uh, which Christological errors are being targeted here. We've talked about several Christological errors uh, in, in this class and last class and in previous classes. But I just want to, just want to see if we can, we can talk about this for a second. Christ is acknowledged to exist in two natures, and these two, these two natures, the definitions say, undergo uh, no change, no confusion, no division, and no separation. Now, let's go through each of these. No confusion and no change. What heresy or heresies is the definition going after here? Wasn't there one that said Christ is like God? Or was it the same as God? Um, so, yes. What, what would that be called? Do you, anybody remember? What was that heresy that taught that, that Christ is of a similar substance and not the same substance with God the Father? Starts with an A. Arianism, okay? So actually, Arianism is dealt with earlier in the definition where you see there uh, kind of a couple of lines down, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity. Okay, so Arianism is dealt, right, dealt with right there. So that's, so that's good. And by the way, a rational soul and a body, what does that deal with? Yeah, yeah, it, and it also deals with Apollinarianism, right? Apollinarianism taught that, that Christ inhabited just a mere human shell. Okay, he, did, he, he wasn't, he, he didn't have a human mind, he didn't have a human soul, he didn't have a human will. In other words, he's not truly human. Okay, but here, no confusion, no change. We see here that, uh, that this is dealing with Apollinarianism and specifically Eutychianism, that teaching of Eutyches. Uh, and I think I think I saw you saw you mouth that back there, Rob Bruce. So, so good on that. Yes, no confusion, no change, dealing especially with Eutychianism there. But what about no division, and no separation? Yeah, 
That would be Nestorianism. Yeah, Nestorianism. Because Nestorius, uh, I keep saying Nestorius. There's, there's a question mark there. But Nestorianism uh, teaches, it, 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 it's so separated in nature as to say that they're two different persons. Okay, so that's going after Nestorianism. What about not parted or divided into two persons? Okay, that's clearly Nestorianism. Um, backing up a little bit, we talked about consubstantial with the Father. What about consubstantial with us with regard to his humanity? What heresy is that dealing with? You said it a moment ago. Yeah, not that Christ, that Christ wasn't a phantom, right? Remember what, what that was called? Starts with a D. It's docetism, yes. And so you can see, the, the, the point here that I'm trying to bring out is that the, the, the goal of, of the framers of Chalcedon was to draw together a comprehensive, complete Christological statement that, that effectively sets the boundaries for how to think about Christ. Just as Nicaea and Constantinople uh, dealt with how to think about God, how to think about the Trinity, Chalcedon, building upon those creeds and building upon Ephesus, uh, sought to establish the boundaries of, uh, of how to think about Christ orthodoxically. Is that a word? I'm not sure. Okay, so let's talk about orthodox Christology and how to make sense of... Uh, what's going on here? I mean, how, how, does, how does one person, two natures, even make sense? And the answer is in the hypostatic union. Now, for those of you looking for a definition, the hypostatic union simply refers to the union of the divine and human natures in the one person of Jesus Christ, the mediator. It's the union of the divine and human natures in the one person of Jesus Christ, the mediator. Christ is one person. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal Son. He is the Word. When Christ uh, refers to himself, uh, when Christ is referred to in the Scriptures, the plural is not used. When he prays to his Father, he says, I, not we. Okay, he's one person. Uh, he's a divine person. Now, this, this kind of begs the question, is Christ a human person? He is not. Christ is not a human person. He's a divine person. He is a true human. He's a true human. But he's not a human person. He's a divine person. If we say he's a human person, we either say he's two persons or we say he's a human person and not a divine person. Okay? Christ is one person, a divine person. Christ exists as one person, one divine person in two natures. He's truly God, and he's truly man. Now, uh, you have a question? Aren't we just basically trying to define then what a nature is and what a person is? Yes. Because you could have said, just the other way around, you could have said, if you defined it this way, that he has one nature but two persons. I mean, if you just define the terms the way you want them defined. Well, I mean, I guess we could do that with any word, right? But then, right. Word, but then words cease to have meaning. Well, but you, you have to agree upon the meaning. It's not that they don't have meaning. It's that you have to agree upon the meaning. And so we're agreeing that Christ has one person, but he has two natures. And, that's, and we're defining it that way. We're defining Christ that way. Yes. I think I'm struggling. Was, was there a question? Well, well, there's not really a question. It's just that it's like when the people in China were taught by this, historians? Yes. They probably didn't spend a whole lot of time saying, oh, he has two persons and two natures. They probably spent a lot of time saying, you need to confess Christ as your Savior. He is the Son of God. He is God. You need to follow him. And they probably didn't spend a lot of time saying, oh, by the way, you're following two people. Because you were actually following three people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Yeah, well, p- part of the thing is we have to remember that, that these things are historically situated and, right. that, and that they're dealing with language that has been handed down to them right. from uh, philosophy and, and the Christian church. Right. Uh, these, these terms uh, did not originate with the church. Uh, they were handed down to them from the, the way Greeks have talked about these things. Right. Men like Plato, Aristotle. Uh, and so they're working with how those words have been used and defined in their cultural context, in their philosophical context. Does that, does that help at all? So the definition of person and nature are predefined. The, the, there's an accepted definition of person and I think more so nature than person, because their person is is kind of a it's, it's one of those things where you know what a person is when you meet one, but how in the world do you define what a person is? And and the the very term person or whatever Greek or Latin phrase you want to use to represent that has actually been a, a subject of, of debate throughout church history and is, in fact, still a subject of debate. Uh, how do we define what a person is? Uh, n- nature is, is, has been a little bit more clean-cut in, in my reading of church history. Person, not so much. And so with regard to that term, I think the church is actually trying to figure out, well, how, how do we define person? Uh, because when we think about personhood, we of necessity think about, well, what does it mean to be a human person? Uh, where where the, 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 the danger comes in is when we try to uh, use that understanding of person and then apply it to God. And I think uh, that's what makes understanding these things so difficult. So... Uh, one person, two natures, truly God, truly man. Uh, m- many try to express this and to say, you know, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. I think that's fine as far as it goes. I think, I think a better term is truly, truly God and truly man. In other words, whatever is essential to each nature, God and man, Christ possesses. Uh, of course, going back to what I said earlier, some might say, well, what about the sin part? Well, sin is not essential to being human. Um, and there's that old saying, to, to err is human. Well, to err is, is human according to its fallen state, right? Uh, to err actually is, is not human, uh, which gloriously we will, we will experience that in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, God made man upright and he sought out many schemes. Anyways, uh, with these natures, as the, as the creed says, as the definition says, there's no mixture, no confusion, no division or separation. But that leaves a question, and this is where we get into to some weeds here. Uh, well, d- does anybody have any questions in their own mind with regard to, to how this works out practically? Well, obviously we see you know, Christ cursing the fig tree and the fig tree bringer, so obviously And we have other cases where he seems to not have knowledge of things that God would have. And that's exactly right, and that's right what I had here in my notes. So, I'm, no, no, no. I, I, wanted, I wanted to draw it out. Uh, yes, that, that leaves questions open. So, so how do we deal, how do we deal with these two seemingly uh, difficult aspects of Christ's human life to reconcile? Namely, uh, the fact that he has power to forgive sins, that he has power to, to raise the dead. Uh, clearly only things that are reserved for uh, divinity, only things that divinity is capable of, but also things where, uh, for example, in uh, Matthew 24, 36, where Jesus says that, uh, that the Son of Man does not know the hour. Uh, what do we do with these things? How do we reconcile these things? Uh, how, do the, how do these two natures of Christ relate in the one person? One proposed solution... And, and you can see this in your outline there. there. There have been a couple of proposed solutions. One proposed solution was what we call the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory. Uh, kenosis is the Greek word for empty. Uh, we see this term being used in Philippians 2.7. Uh, 
Uh, I, let me let me just read that right quick. If you want to follow along, you're more than welcome to. But Philippians chapter two, which is a great uh, Christological hymn. This is what Paul says, starting at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Interestingly, Paul is actually using Greek philosophical language there. He's actually saying, who being in very nature God, uh, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but, verse 7, made himself of no reputation. That's actually, uh, that's not a literal translation. The word there is kenosis, empty. It's actually a good interpretation because I think uh, the King James translators and the New King James translators following them wanted to disabuse us of any notion of what the kenosis theory taught. Now, what did the kenosis theory teach? The kenosis theory argued that Christ in his incarnation emptied himself of divine attributes, that he dispensed with several or perhaps even all of his divine attributes things such as omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. That's why I think the King James translators did not translate it literally empty, but rather made himself, he emptied himself of reputation. He made himself nothing. What's the problem with this teaching to teach that Christ emptied himself of of things like omniscience? What's the problem with that? He's not fully God. Yes, that's right. Somebody else say something? Yes, uh, God is, just to talk about some high theology here, we talk about God's simplicity. God is simple. He's not made of parts. Uh, Meaning that uh, all that is in God is God. God is not a mixture of a bunch of attributes. He's not, you know, you, you can't throw omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence in a blender and then out pops God. Uh, rather, God is his attributes, meaning that uh, things like omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, uh, if God did not possess one of those or any of those or all of those, then by definition, he, he would not be God. And so, if Jesus Christ in his incarnation uh, divested himself, which when you think about it, is kind of a in itself is a contradiction because God cannot ungod himself. But if he emptied himself of, of divine attributes like omniscience, then he would cease to be God. He would not be fully God. And so this uh, this theory is a non-starter. And so what we have here is rather the Chalcedonian solution, and it's found right here toward the end of the definition. When it says, at no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together in a single person and a single subsistent being. In other words, in the incarnation, in the hypostatic union, in the joining and the uniting of the human and the divine in the one person of Jesus Christ, each nature preserves its own essential qualities. It must, otherwise God's either not truly divine or not truly human, or both. The divine is not confused with the human, nor the human with the divine. Uh, Christ's humanity also does not limit his deity. And his deity does not deify his humanity. Now, uh, you might still ask the question, so is Christ omniscient or isn't he? Because he does say the Son of Man does not know the hour. And also we learn from Luke that Christ did what as a child? Yeah, he grew in knowledge and wisdom. The answer is yes. Christ is omniscient according to his deity. He is omnipresent according to his deity. He is locally contained according to his humanity. And this is where we get into uh, just the great mystery of the incarnation. 
the key here is that uh, the hypostatic union is such that the qualities that can be attributed to either nature can also be attributed to the one person. I'll say that again. We see this in the Bible sometimes. That properties or attributes or qualities that, that, are, that can be properly attributed to either the divine nature or the human nature are sometimes attributed to the one person. So let me give you an example from Scripture. A very famous passage, Acts 20, 28, where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders before his departure, his final departure to Jerusalem. And he's giving them this warning. He says, be on guard for yourselves uh, and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers and shepherd the church of God, which he purchased, what does he say? With his own blood. Listen to that. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, so shepherd the church of God. The church of who? God, which he, who? God, purchased with his own blood. Does God have blood according to his divine nature? Of course not. God isn't physical. He's not material. He certainly doesn't have blood. But yet, Paul says here, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That is a case, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here. That is the case of uh, something that can be attributed to Christ's human nature, that is, the ability to bleed, the ability even to die, the capacity, rather, to die, is attributed to the one person, namely, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you another example from hymnody. We sing this hymn sometimes, And Can It Be? Listen to what Charles Wesley says here. This is the refrain. He says, Amazing love, how can it be who can finish it? That thou, my God, should what? Die for me. Now, can God die? According to his deity, no. And so, uh, do we accuse our brother here, Mr. Charles Wesley, of being a heretic? Because after all, in more recent history, we do have people like, uh, who was it, Nietzsche, who said God is dead. Uh, do we accuse Charles Wesley of being a Nietzschean or being, you know, some kind of, yeah, some kind of heretic? No, we don't. I, I think, and I, I think some would disagree with me here. I think some have accused him of, of the heresy called Patropassianism. Uh, I think... Maybe even Mike himself would disagree with me here. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think what is being communicated here is patropassianism because Charles isn't saying that the Father, this is what patropassianism teaches, that the Father suffered in the Son. The Father suffered in, in Jesus Christ. No. Uh, Jesus Christ, the God-man, suffered. Jesus Christ, the God-man, bled and died. And so I think it's, I think it's quite right that uh, Charles Wesley says, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And it's a shocking thing to say that. But uh, when we think about the hypostatic union and the fact that what can be attributed to one nature can be attributed to the person, we can say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? God didn't cease to exist. Uh, the triune God did not have a period during, during Christ's three days in the grave where he just, he just wasn't governing the universe he wasn't. He he, he just wasn't uh, there. He was always there. He's always existed, and yet at the same time, Jesus Christ, the God Man, suffered and bled and died. Now, uh, any questions or comments about that? Yeah, you, you, you basically defined that. All right, it's not one or the other when we do with Philippians, but you haven't solved the problem of Philippians. Of, okay, well then, how can Christ not know? Deity, other than is it either a voluntary non-use of the attribute of deity, or is it a turning down the volume, if you will, and okay, we're going to kind of mute it, and we get on the Mount of Transfiguration, where we turn the volume back up. Yeah, 
and, and that's, that's where we just get into such high mystery that it's, it's just really hard to deal with. Um, and, and this is, this is why, you know, um, this is why Chalcedon dealt in apophatic theology. We, we set the boundaries around Christology uh, a lot of the time by saying what Christ, what the hypostatic union, what his person, what his two natures are not, as opposed to what they are. And I think Calvin at this point would say, you know, where, where Holy Scripture, where the Spirit shut his mouth, we need to shut ours. Um, at the same time, I mean, you know, you're right. The problem still does persist. What do we do with that? And I think the best explanation that I have read is by an acquaintance of mine uh, where he, he's, he's much more well-read in the, in the church fathers than I am. But he said that, that the, the human nature of Christ, the human nature, not the person of Christ, the human nature of Christ had a, a limited access to the divine nature. And, you know, I, I guess maybe we just have to, we have to stop there. Um, but what that brings us to, as you can see there in your outline, that brings us to that Latin phrase, communicatio idiomatum, which simply means the communication of attributes in the one person of Jesus Christ, how the human and the divine nature relate. And, and I, I won't dwell on this too long. I'll just read for you uh, from the Westminster Confession, chapter 8, uh, paragraph 7, which says this, that Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And so that's just a very, very short way of saying what I've been talking about for the past 15 minutes. And, uh, you know, that's where Scripture stops. That's where our confession stops. Any questions beyond that, we just have to be very, very careful with. Now, uh, any other questions or comments before, before we, we kind of wrap up here? All right, let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of Chalcedon. I would say that Chalcedon, probably more than any other council up until now uh, that we've studied, resulted in the, perhaps the most severe and immediate schism in the church. We have an actual separation in this case of, of large church bodies from one another because of the Chalcedonian definition. Uh, many bishops throughout, especially uh, the, the, the upper, the, the northern part of Africa, were very dissatisfied with the whole two natures, one person paradigm, specifically with the two natures aspect. For them, uh, it was difficult to make sense of two natures not necessitating two persons. And so their solution was, well, we have to say that Christ was actually one nature, one person. Otherwise, in their minds, if you say Christ is two natures, then you're just, you're a, you're a Nestorian. Um, you believe that Christ is two persons. And so uh, because of this, uh, and because Chalcedon by some was seen to be an illegitimately called council, remember Ephesus condemned, uh, well not condemned, but they, they forbade the calling of any other councils. Many bishops broke away from those who held to Chalcedonian Orthodoxy, uh, specifically those uh, in Alexandria. There was a large group of, of Christians in Alexandria who disagreed with Chalcedon. And they broke away. They said, we're not going to have any part of this. This is an, illeg this is an illegitimate council. Uh, it was called against the wishes of Ephesus. And, uh, and we think it's wrong. And so we're going to break away from it. These, uh, these people became known as Monophysites. I, I referenced that with uh, Eutyches in the earlier, the earlier part of this, this, uh, this lesson. They became known as Monophysites, simply meaning, you can see there in your outline, uh, one nature. These are our one naturists, we could call them. This, uh, this schism was so bad at first that not long after Chalcedon, 
there was a new patriarch of Alexandria who took office, and he ended up signing and uh, subscribing to the Chalcedonian definition. And the schism was so bad that there was a mob that arose in Alexandria against this man, uh, a mob that was so fierce that even uh, imperial troops could not settle it. And what they did is they actually seized this patriarch and uh, these Monophysite Alexandrians uh, lynched him. They, uh, they murdered him. That's how bad this schism was. Now, uh, this schism remains in effect to this day. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the Coptic Church? Uh, Coptic uh, just being another word for Egyptian. Uh, the Coptic Church, which is still in existence today, I actually went to seminary with a Coptic priest. I'm not sure why he went to our seminary, uh, being a confessed monophysite. I'm also not sure why our seminary admitted him. That's maybe even a more serious question. Yeah, well, anyways, I mean, he would come to seminary in, in his black robes and black hat and had his characteristic uh, black beard. Uh, he was interesting. But anyways, uh, the Coptic Church is still around today. They are still monophysites. They still, they, they still uh, deny Chalcedon. They still say Christ is one nature, one person. Uh, and they're part of a broader church really called the Oriental Orthodox Church who are also monophysites. Just to give you an idea of how uh, prevalent this church is, the Coptic Church has around 10 million members. Uh, I think the, the OPC has around 30,000. So, so they're, they're very large. The Oriental Orthodox Church, uh, which includes, interestingly, the Eritrean uh, Church, also monophysites, uh, has around 60 million members. So a very, very large, large communion of uh, confessed monophysites uh, in existence today in the Coptic Church and the broader Oriental Orthodox Church. Now, just to wrap things up here, uh, I just want to give a couple of concluding thoughts. First of all, I just want to show you that the language of Chalcedon was directly adopted by uh, the Westminster Divines. Uh, it, was, it was taken up by, by several later confessions, but most notably by the Westminster Standards, which are our doctrinal standards here at uh, this church. Now, while the standards make no explicit reference to Chalcedon, uh, they actually explicitly reference the Apostles' Creed in the larger catechism, but they make no reference to Chalcedon, it's easy to see how, in some cases, uh, Westminster practically copied Chalcedon. Did I put Westminster 8-2 yes. in your outline? Yes. Let me read this here. Look at what it says. This is on the chapter on uh, the mediator of the covenant. This is a, a statement on Christology. It says, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Uh, what language in there is taken practically directly from Chalcedon? Yeah. Yeah. What'd you say, Rob Bruce? Oh, without conversion, That's exactly right. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, and separately joined together in one person without, conver without conversion. Again, we have the apophatic negative theology. No conversion, no composition, no confusion. So uh, we benefit directly from the work of those... Uh, those who came together at Chalcedon. But just a couple of other concluding thoughts here. Um, I, I hope you see that uh, theology matters as, as we wrap up this, church his, this ancient church history course. Theology matters. I mean, that's one of the big lessons that we get from ancient church history. You know, our, our modern evangelicalism, you know, 
sometimes looks back on this period and they're just like, man, these, these people were just arguing about the dumbest things, but they actually weren't. They weren't. Uh, these things about which the ancient church uh, argued and debated, and some, in some cases even bled and died, are of uh, supreme importance. If we don't know who God is, if we don't know what God is, if we don't know who Christ is and what Christ is, then, uh, then we, we can have no uh, true understanding and perhaps no even true appropriation of, of salvation for ourselves. I mean, this is part of the gospel. It's that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, which begs the question, well, uh, what God and what Christ? And that's the questions that these, these men of the, uh, of the ancient church were seeking to answer over several hundred years. And so theology matters. But also, I just want to encourage you, even though we're, we're stopping for a while with church history, I just want to encourage you uh, to keep studying, keep learning. Uh, there, are, there are many, many good books uh, that you can buy. And if you, if you want to know some, some recommendations, uh, I, I am happy to offer those. I'm, I meant to put them in the outline here. There are many good books uh, that you can buy that will, that will help you in your studies and help you along in not, in not just uh, stopping here, but reading uh, all the different controversies and contributions of church history. Uh, I think I said it in a previous class, but one of my most formative classes in seminary was my, was my church history courses. Uh, I learned more about theology, uh, hermeneutics, exegesis, biblical studies, uh, preaching in my history courses than I did in the, in the courses that were actually devoted to those subjects. I'm speaking a little bit hyperbolically there, but the reason why I say that is because in church history, you see all of these important matters. Uh, you see them actually worked out by real living people who dealt with real problems. And so I just want to encourage you to, uh, to keep learning more, uh, you know, be buyers and readers of books, and uh, and and you'll be you'll be well equipped to to know truth from error. Um, any questions or comments? Yes, sir. If we were to continue this church history course, what in, in just thirty seconds would be the major highlights from Calcedon until today? Oh, for goodness' sake! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thirty seconds. Oh. <laughs> 1,500 years of church history in 30 seconds. Um, well, you know, one of the reasons why the Middle Ages are, are sometimes called the Dark Ages is not because it was an evil time, but because we, we actually, there's a lot we don't know about that 1,000 years. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to hit highlights for those times, but, you know, one of the highlights that, that actually doesn't come long after Chalcedon would be uh, the rise of monasticism. Uh, you know, we we don't really in the Reformed tradition, like monkery, as Luther called it. Uh, you know, we, we don't really advise becoming monks. But uh, we owe a lot to the monastics. Uh, people like uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Francis of Assisi. Uh, we, owe, we owe very much to them. In fact, we owe our, our very Bibles to them. And so that's one of the major highlights that I would, I would give just for the Middle Ages. Obviously, after that, you have uh, the, the, the Proto-Reformation. So I'm speaking of men before Martin Luther, Wycliffe, Huss, Tyndale. Uh, and then you have the actual Reformation. That's obviously for us uh, a major, major highlight. And then after that, I would say uh, dealing with the, the encroachments of, of uh, rationalism and... Um, I'm losing the word here. Uh, enlightenment, thank you, which I think Chris Strebel calls the endarkenment. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, encroachment of, of rationalistic and enlightenment thinking upon the church, which led to, um, which led to liberalism, uh, theological liberalism. Um, modern times, 20th century, it's hard to say. You have the rise of the fundamentalist in the early 20th century and, and the, um, the interactions between fundamentalism and modernism. 
again, that's just a very cursory set of highlights there, but that's that's what I would would point to. Uh, do you have a, a question or comment, Anne Marie? Well, yeah, when you were talking about the Oriental Orthodox Church, I have a friend who once told me that the Orthodox churches are like the the geographical designations are just that geographical. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Like with the Oriental and Greek and Russian, would the other Orthodox churches also ascribe to the? They also be, I don't know how to say that, whatever. Uh, no, no. Uh, Oriental Orthodoxy is different from Eastern Orthodoxy, and Russian Orthodoxy is just a kind of an offshoot of Eastern Orthodoxy. So Eastern Orthodoxy has has a an Orthodox Christology. Yeah, that's just the short answer to that. I think um, I think we're out of time. So let, let me pray, and then we'll we'll move into worship.